Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. I'm Ben Peterson. And we're here to talk about chapters 18 through 23 of Genesis. And chapter 18 covers the three holy men, as they're called, who appear to Abraham. And we'll have an interesting exegesis by Ben on that, on this episode, and some other ideas. Uh, we'll bring in the, the Quranic narrative and see what that gives us. In chapter 19, the holy men that Lot entertains and the Sodom story, where the people of Sodom are inhospitable to the visitors, and Lot is, is hospitable, though not as hospitable as Abraham was. Uh-huh. And, and he seems to be imitating Abraham, but in an inferior way. And in chapter 20, we have once again Abraham telling somebody his wife is his sister and giving her to him, and him being told by God, nope, that's somebody else's wife, and him giving back the wife and and gifts, lots of gifts. This is the second time this happens. (laughs) And then Sarah has a son. Abraham and Sarah find out that they're going to have a son. Uh, that Abraham's going to have a son by Sarah, although um, we do have the stories, two different stories, right, in the two different versions of this story that we get. As we mentioned in the introduction to the Bible, the the documentary hypothesis gives us a J author, the Yaoist, Yaoist being spelled with a J in German, and the priestly author, and they give two different versions. Remember last time, I couldn't remember who laughed, whether it was Abraham or, or Sarah? Yeah. Well, that that's because... It's both. The answer is yes, right? <laughs> it depends on which which version of the story you're reading. Yeah. And so so they have a son, Isaac. And in chapter 22, we have what we call the binding of Isaac. And we'll compare again that with the Quranic narrative to see what that gets us. And then we have chapter 23, the final chapter where Sarah is buried after she dies. Well, Abraham has to buy a, a place to bury her. And he offers this... Well, he offers to pay full price and he's asked an exorbitant amount and he pays it. And so, and there's, you know, there's strange stuff in these stories. There's stuff that scholars don't agree on. Nobody knows what's going on. Uh-huh. Uh, there's, there's stuff where the, where the common folk don't know what's going on. And there's stuff where even the scholars don't know what's going on. Yeah. Where we're all, we're all in the well, same Well, there's boat. even parts where the Lord doesn't know what's going on. There is that too. Yeah. The, Abraham <laughs> instructs the Lord on how to be moral. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, there's, yeah, let's, so let's go into this. Great. Yeah. So getting into chapter 18 here, we have a couple mentions of trees, which we, we digressed on last time, Christopher. So I, I would just point out here that we still have this return of this motif of trees. When you're talking about very arid land, much of this is desert, you know, trees are a significant landmark in a lot of cases, right? And so, you know, there's a later part in these chapters where it actually talks about Abraham planting a tree, right? As, as this is a, a significant part to commemorate something, planting a tree, 
building an altar, things like that. Yeah, if you were with us last time, you, like Ben and I, will not be able to stop seeing the trees and the relationship <laughs> right. to prophecy. Right? Verse 8, he stood by them under the tree, yeah, and they did eat, and they said unto him. So these heavenly messengers, as at least we can say as one interpretation, are speaking to him while he stands by them under a tree. Yes. Yeah, and this is Abraham in this moment acting in his quote-unquote prophetic calling as well, right? As talking with the Lord and and foreseeing what's going to happen in Sodom and negotiating and, and so forth. But the the main theme of this chapter 18 and then the next chapter 19, or, or one of the principal themes here is that of hospitality. So this is a very strong cultural imperative, not just tradition, but imperative for these people. And it persists to this day in this region of the world. And, and that is that when someone comes to you and is taken into your house willingly, then they are under your protection. And here at the beginning, Abraham not only takes that imperative seriously, but he seems to seek it, right? So his, his covenant with the Lord is that not only that he's blessed, but he then has this responsibility to bless others. So what do we get here? We have Abraham sitting here at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. And it's, you know, some commentators talk about how that's not typically a thing you would do. In the heat of the day, you would try to get as much shade as possible. So for him to be there towards the outside, he's actually looking for travelers, looking for visitors, people that he can help and bless. And as soon as he finds some people, he immediately, you know, makes some bread, kills um, an animal, prepares a whole meal for them. It's this big thing for him to entertain these guests. It first comes out and says that there are these, these three men, but the narrative from here gets really kind of odd and Wait, and Ben, twisted. sorry, before you, before you go off into that, Abraham actually goes running. When he actually mm -hmm. sees someone, he goes running. And if we compare with Lot, Lot just gets up. Yeah. Right? And so the, the text tells us Abraham goes running to the visitors. Yes, yes. He ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. This evokes in my mind anti-Nephi-Lehi's, right? You know, like running out and oh. bowing down to their, their enemies. Now, these aren't ostensibly Abraham's enemies, but he's going out to bless them, right? He's, he's going out to meet them. He not only waits for them to come, but as soon as he sees them, he goes out to them because it's his responsibility to bless. So yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I actually had, had highlighted that in mind, but you know, as we proceed with this narrative, not just the identity, but the actual pronoun and character and person of these people and even the number starts getting really ambiguous. I'm going to read from one of the commentary footnotes in the NRSV here because it puts this succinctly. It says, the relation between the three visitors and the Lord is unclear. The narrative fluidly shifts from speaking of them as a group to having the Lord speak alone. Later materials in verse 22 and, and 19 verse 1 conceive of the Lord as one of the three angels, though this is not specified in the preceding narrative. In other words, scholars don't really have a consensus as to what's going on here with the identity of these people. Again, it starts off calling them three, but then Abraham is having a conversation with just the Lord, 
And then he has a conversation with the three, but then he's having a conversation again with just the Lord. But then in chapter 19, the beginning of chapter 19, we have just two of them going to Lot. And so it's unclear, well, did one of them stay behind, apparently? And so all this to say that it, it again, is very ambiguous and confusing as to what's really going on with who these people are and how the Lord fits into it. And I would just say that it, it seems to me here that Abraham does have these visitors come, and what's going on with the whole discussion with the Lord is basically the revelation that Abraham is receiving or the conversation he is having with the Lord that sort of underpins his experience that he's having with these visitors. And to me, it seems like his conversation with the Lord is kind of a separate narrative than his visit from these these visitors, and they've gotten weaved together. And And I don't know if, you know, like documentary hypothesis would validate this as as two separate narratives that have been weaved together, but it kind of seems like that to me because, like I said, there's really ambiguity in who is talking at different points, whether it's all three of them or a single person or it's even Abraham, you know, who the Lord is in this situation. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, this uh, if we separate the conversation from the Lord from that with the other two personages, I'll call them, then that'll actually help us understand your reading, right? Your unique exegesis of, well, not of this story, but of the next story where the yeah. same personages are involved. You know, another thing I remember, if, if memory stirs me, is that even when Abraham speaks to them, you know, and calls them Lord, it's actually in the plural, in the original, and that's because that's how you would talk to God. So it actually doesn't help at all. You can't tell still. Yeah, there could be some pronoun ambiguity here that's going on, not not in a Trinitarian sense. I, I, I want to emphasize that there's no evidence that there's some introduction of some proto-Trinitarian notion here. This is just ambiguity of pronouns in reference to the divine. To me, it's more like what is called in, in the Quran, iltifat, where you just have this change of pronouns from I to we. The pronouns just change, and, and there's like this change of person where you don't know what's going on. Yeah, so in the biblical tradition, sometimes the use of the plural pronoun is a throwback to a, a polytheistic mindset of a council of gods, and sometimes it can be something else. You know, because the Hebrew monotheism did grow out of a polytheistic tradition, and so there's still a lot of that types of reference to God in a plural sense. We can even say, now that you've already admitted that they're using these terms, that they're thinking of God in this way as gods, that they're not actually monotheists, but monolatrists, right? We've right. said this before. So they, they acknowledge that there are other gods, but they're worshiping one God. And this is something that's coming to be with Abraham. Yeah, you get that later that they acknowledge that other nations have their own gods, but that their God is the only God they worship, right? But they acknowledge right. that there's these others. And that is an, you know, kind of an interesting ancient mindset point to bring out and, and will be more important, I think, as we move along in the Bible that gods were seen as nationalistic. And so you had a God of this nation and a God of that nation and your God maybe was more powerful than the other God, but it didn't mean the other God didn't exist. When you cross the national border, you actually crossed into the territory of that God, so to speak. Yeah, and if we think in terms of New Testament, 
then when the Christians are asked to make a sacrifice to the gods of the Romans to show their allegiance as a minimum requirement, and they're not willing to do it, it's because they believe that the gods of the Romans are false. And they don't mean they don't exist. They mean they are demons. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So what I see going on here is that it seems like for consistency's sake in this narrative, there do seem to be two physical people and that potentially the use of the word three at the beginning of chapter 18 would be to include the Lord, not necessarily in the mind, but but in the narrative of Abraham. So like he has these people come and then he starts a conversation with God. And so God is there with them, right? And he's having this conversation with God at the same time that these visitors are there. And so it, it is almost kind of a communion moment, right? With with these visitors. And Abraham is treating them as angels in this, as messengers from God in that sense, because again, that's his covenant. That's his responsibility to to treat people that way. And that's his reputation as well as being a very generous, a very hospitable person. And and he passes on that tradition. So they're having this conversation and the topic of Sarah having been promised a child comes up and Sarah overhears this and it says she laughed to herself. Now, I think in the KJV- That's the NRSV, right? Yeah, yeah. That's in the the NRSV. In the KJV, it says something like, what does it say? She laughs within herself. She laughs within herself. And so the idea is that, you know, nobody else could hear. So, you know, ostensibly- She's she's kind of laughing to herself or within herself or laughs. Yeah, the NRSV says laughs to herself. Well, I think it's a better transition because she's actually heard to laugh and yeah. she's called out on it and she lies about it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't laugh. You know, I was just uh, coughing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's she's chuckling at the fact there would be this promise or or prophecy even of her having a child. She doesn't believe that's the case still. This is an echo of, of Abraham laughing when the Lord makes him a promise. And, and so it could be kind of a retelling of that same story in a, in a different way. So later here in this story, you know, Christopher, you talked at the beginning about how many of the characters don't seem to really know what's going on. And then we get this interesting statement. Again, we've, we've switched pronouns or, you know, we don't know how this fits into the context of, of who's speaking, but in my proposition that we have two physical visitors, but that the Abraham is also having a conversation with the Lord kind of on the side while this visitation is happening with these two men. So then we have this sort of this conversation with the Lord that again, gets ambiguous because it gets mixed up with them visiting as well. So we have this statement about Sodom. Uh, the Lord said, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So apparently, the Lord doesn't really know what's going on. He's just hearing rumors. And so this is another example of not only do the people not really know what's going on, Abraham doesn't really know what's going on, but apparently even the Lord in this case doesn't really know what's going on until he goes down. This is an, an echo of the Tower of Babel, where the Lord has to come down to see what's going on. This isn't an omnipresent, omniscient God, at least not conceptualized here, that we like to think of in a pan-biblical sense, right? 
Yeah, and that's after in verse 17, it says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? And so he thinks, you know, okay, I've I've gotta I've gotta see what's going on here. And and they're on their way to Sodom, which we didn't mention, right? It's weird because it's like the the Abraham and visitors and the Lot and visitors stories kind of blend into each other. It is. So you ran into this, Christopher, just now, because we're reading through this and it's not clear who's talking at any given point about what they're going to do. I mean, it says the Lord, but then it jumps to the men. So verse 22 kind of highlights this. It says, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Well, if the Lord is one of these three people, just two of them left, right? Right. And so that this verse seems to indicate to me that like my reading of this really fits a lot better with what's going on. Again, at beginning it says three because these two are coming and the Lord appears to Abraham or comes to him and they start having a conversation. And so these two men move on. They're traveling to Sodom and Gomorrah. And as they're going away... Abraham is having this conversation with the Lord, and he kind of intuits who these men are and what they're going to do. And so he starts having a conversation with the Lord, negotiating with him, sort of implying that these men are are sent on an errand from the Lord. Although that's not really explicit in the text, simply in the mind of Abraham, that's what he believes. And so because Abraham here believes that these men are sent from God to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, or he has the hint of this, right? Then what happens, what follows is then a conversation with the Lord in which he's negotiating for the survival of the city. And so then we get this, well, if there's, what does he start with? 50, then will you save it? And then he just starts going down from there. And at every point, the Lord says, sure, that's fine. Okay, yeah, I'll do that. But at no point anywhere in the narrative do we even get the Lord explicitly saying, I'm going to go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. What we have is Abraham intuiting this and thereby then having this conversation back and forth with the Lord in which the Lord agrees to his terms, but but never like corrects his question, right? Yeah. You know what this reminds me of, Ben? In in the Islamic tradition, there's the, the night journey and ascension of the Prophet Muhammad, where he flies on his steed from Mecca to oh, Jerusalem yeah, yeah. And, and, and back in one night. He goes up to heaven. He's told that Muslims should pray 50 times a day, right? Oh, By, yes, he goes up he to God shoots. and God tells him this and he comes down and Moses says, no, 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 you got to go back up and talk to him again. <laughs> They're not going to do it. I've been through the desert with these people. They're not going to do it. And he goes back up and he gets, he negotiates down and Moses sends him back up. You know, it's still too many, you know. And so he goes several times and he finally gets him down to five. And Moses is still trying to send him back up. And he says, no, I'm not. I, I, I can't go back up and ask him again. And, and that's how we get the five daily prayers. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, re- I remember that now. And that does echo this. And it's kind of another iteration of the concept we've talked about before, where there's where prayer becomes this back and forth struggling with God, not to change God's will, but ours. And so Abraham here is is starting to come to know God's mercy, but thereby also teaching him to be more merciful because he is 
is coming to align himself with God's will and realizing that God's will isn't changing through Abraham's negotiation. You know, God is is willing for for Sodom to be saved with with five righteous people, right? But it's Abraham that's realizing that that that's what he wants as well, right? That his his will is is aligned with the Lord's. Yeah. But we get this next chapter where they are destroyed anyway because these five righteous people, which can't even be found, right? What what ends up coming out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Three, because it's just Lot and his two daughters? Well, I mean, so, okay, that brings up a question. Yeah. Are they then, Lot and his daughters, are the only ones who are crying out? Because we have a cry out for uh-huh. justice to God. Uh-huh. And God hears this, and this is what he's coming to, to investigate. Yes, so is it really just the three of them? Right. So this comes to my throw my tie over my shoulder theory about what's what's really going on. If we want to look at this, if we want to say, okay, this is actually describing some historical event. What might have really been going on in history during this time? And so I'm reading between the lines quite a bit here, but I'm going to say that what I sort of proposes what's going on here, it fits better with a historical potential of, what should I say, uh, intertribal relations and, you know, fits within the the ancient narrative and, and historical understanding that we have of how things kind of went about. So again, we've got these two men, which it says in the beginning of chapter 19 are, are two angels, but you have these two men that come into Sodom, and Lot sees them, he brings them into his house. And as soon as everybody in the city sees that Lot has taken these two visitors into his house, they gather, and Lot has taken them into his protection, right? This is the hospitality concept. Now, they gather, and they want to violate this hospitality. And the the method we were shown in the scriptures by which they do that says bring them out that we might know them. So we're talking about a sexual violation here, which is where the the concept of sodomy comes from. We're not overtly talking about some like homosexual desire. Rather, this is an act of malicious, aggressive, inhospitable behavior towards visitors for the purpose of humiliating. For them. the purpose of humiliating. Now, so this the is question that, arises that is done to this day. Yeah, that's true. In prison contexts, yeah, uh, for example, um, the question arises. You know, yes, you bring up this is for humiliation purposes, but why do the people of Sodom? What? Why is this a practice for them, and why is this a thing? Now, we have some apocryphal and commentary that can be pulled from certain other historical accounts surrounding the concept of what's going on here with Sodom that we we sort of glean. And Hugh Nibley did a little bit of a, a reduction of this. I'm going to read a paragraph from something he wrote about this. And this is talking in context of, of the ancient culture and tradition of hospitality, And this is the idea that in passing through anyone's vineyard, you may help yourself to whatever you can eat, but you may not carry off any in a container. If the owner denies you what you need, he is greedy. If you take more than you need, you are greedy. In a field of grain, take what you need then and there, but don't take a sickle to cut or collect it. If you take it for profit or gain over and above what you need, you are in danger. As Paul also reminds us, 
It was when the people of Sodom and Gomorrah denied passing strangers and even the birds of heaven their share of the fruit on the trees that Abraham cursed them in the name of his God. According to the Midrash, their sexual aberrations were second in wickedness to such meanness of spirit. We have a verse in Ezekiel that backs this up, right? There's a verse in Ezekiel that actually tells us what the sin of Sodom is, and it's not actually specified as sodomy. There are two verses. The second verse mentions an aberration that is undefined that could be sodomy. There's something more going on here, and there's something primary going on where this is secondary. And that's Ezekiel 16, 49-50. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, what is called pure religion, right? And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. Yeah. So again, the primary issue here is that of treating strangers and travelers with harshness and inhospitality. Actually, there's reports that they would often kill traveling merchants that would come. They didn't treat visitors with any degree of of kindness. They cast out the poor, or one report says they threw them in the river, right? <laughs> so Yeah, Ben, you and I have experience of not ancient Near Eastern, but Middle Eastern. And the difference, by the way, for listeners, ancient Near East means that same area that we call the Middle East today, anciently. The yeah. Middle East means the same area that they, that's called the ancient Near East, where these stories are happening today, right? And so Ben and I studied Middle East studies. We lived in the Middle East. We experienced this kind of hospitality that is alive and well with the Arabs and goes all the way back to ancient Greece, this idea of the sacred guest-host relationship. And it's funny because that same word that means guest can actually mean enemy. You know, you see it in in English in the hosts, right? The hosts uh, are the the armies, right? Mm. So the, the whole idea of the guest and the host This could be an enemy, but if this potential enemy, even a potential spy, whether then or now, and I know you have a story about this, Ben, from uh, from the modern Middle East, and that dovetails with your interpretation, is this sacred relationship that once you take them in, any stranger, that that stranger comes under your protection. And so my experience of this, you know, living in the Middle East, is that I just have never experienced the kind of hospitality that that I've experienced among Arabs Mm -hmm. anywhere else. Right. And I know also from, not just, not from my experience alone, but for example, with ISIS, there's a a sheikh who gave, uh, who wrote a book refuting ISIS. And so he goes into Sharia, into the the Islamic law, and he says, look, these guys are killing uh, reporters, right? These reporters have visas. We, meaning the Arab countries, the Muslim countries, uh, not necessarily Arab, the Muslim countries gave them visas that means they're guests. And that means every Muslim, whether in that country or anywhere else, is under obligation to protect them. And ISIS is killing them. This is un-Islamic. So this is an example from, from the modern Middle East. Right. Yeah, I mean, this this extends to stories that you hear of, of even in, in war zones in Iraq and, and then Afghanistan, of tribal peoples who, even when they come across someone who is ostensibly their enemy, like this foreign power, right? The United States military is there. 
when you have a person who has invited them into their tent, into their home, when that is done, they are taken under their protection. And so regardless of any other consideration, the first consideration is that they have come under that hospitable protection. So what's going on here with the story of Lot is regardless of who these men are, Lot has this responsibility to protect them. And so how this is sort of presented to show the extremity of this obligation is that when they come and try to get these men, Lot says, no, you can't have them. They're under my protection. Here, have my daughters. And I don't know whether Lot actually said that or not, but it's contrasting the hospitality of Lot, or I should say the poor imitation that Lot is giving of hospitality after the manner of Abraham with the meanness and the inhospitality and violence of the people of Sodom. And so if, if we take that all in context, we, we then ask, who are these two men? You know, they're presented as these angels, these messengers of God that are sent to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Why they would need to go into the city to do that isn't clear. What makes more sense to me if we were to try to throw this into a historical context and say, hey, there's some actual historical event that inspired this story. It makes a lot more sense to me that these two men would be something like spies from a rival tribe, nation, city, or country that have come to Sodom and Gomorrah to scope it out. And we have all of these statements about the cries that have come from Sodom and Gomorrah, the outcries. What it is, is, you know, any of the surrounding peoples that have ever traveled there or or maybe family members have gone there, or maybe they've sent dignitaries there from their governments, from their kings or whatever. They've sent envoys and they get killed or driven out or treated harshly. And this happens over and over again. These two men come to then check it out and say, what is going on here? They get treated this way. They say it a lot. Hey, we're going to sneak you and your family out. And they do so. And in the meantime, the armies of wherever they came from are there waiting outside of the city, ready to attack as soon as they get out. They send some sort of signal, get a message to them. They attack. That's when we have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. To me, historically, that really fits a lot better with what would be going on here. It becomes then explained as these are the angels of the Lord, and then the Lord rains down fire and brimstone from heaven and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. But it makes a whole lot more sense if we were to look at this from, again, historical context, that, that what might really be going on here are some spies that come in, scope out the city. They are not treated well. They validate all the stories they've heard before, and they can then go back and say, yeah, these people really are enemies. They're weak. Let's take them out. So we can have, you know, the same, and this isn't the only time this happens in the Bible. You can have that the fire and brimstone that comes down actually comes from catapults, let's say, sure. which go at least as far back as 7th century BC. Sure. And it gets explained as God did it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you have a situation where the people are notoriously evil, right? In this case, everybody hates these people. And these few people barely get out of there. And the whole place burns to the ground and, and almost you know no one or no one survives. 
then yeah, it's very easy from uh, an outsider point of view to say, well, you know, that was the judgment of God. Fire came down from heaven, destroyed the whole place. That's a very reasonable explanation for what's going on here, especially when you know you want to pass that down to to future generations. Ostensibly, we have Lot, his two daughters, and then his wife that are going to come out of the city with these two men. The two sons-in-law, they were married to the daughters. They don't listen. They ignore. In fact, there's kind of this echo of the laughing of Sarah. They kind of laugh or dismiss the warning that the city is going to be destroyed. So they don't go with them. Lot's wife, in in this story here, she she turns around. She's told not to look back. She does turn around and looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. So what is going on here? Do people that look at burning cities turn into piles of salt? Happens all the time. Yeah, it's all the time. Well, you know, there's uh, there's several layers here. In in various stories, uh, Christopher, you were bringing up a, another version of the story. I'll let you tell it. But the idea is that Lot's wife may have physically left that city, but her heart and mind are still there. And so she's still there in a sense, in at least one sense. And so whatever it is that happened to her, we get this etiological addition to the story. And what I mean by that, we've talked about etiological myths and, and narratives and stories quite a bit, and they'll keep coming up because, again, this is Genesis, right? This is the reconstruction of the mythological story and origin of the Israelite people. And so they're taking all of their oral traditions and stories, plus things written down, and they're compiling them into this book of Genesis to explain how things came about. And so you get a lot of these types of etiologies where it's say, well, you know, we have this story and then this thing happened and that's how you explain the way things are today. It's so funny, you know, when you listen or read Herodotus, he does this all the time, you know, Rodas is always like uh, telling a story and then he says, and and then that's the way it is today. If you go look, you'll see this, you know, and it's this long story that explains this, this thing the way that it is. And that's what's happening here as well. So you see Lot's wife turning into Pillar of Salt. Well, the idea is that Sodom and Gomorrah existed in that plain around the Dead Sea, which is, you know, full of salt from the Salt Sea. And so... The explanation for where all this came from is, well, it was from when God rained fire and brimstone down and burned everything to the ground and, and things turned to salt. So there you have that explanation of where this came from. So again, Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt. It's an etiological description of where the Dead Sea came from and how Lot's wife didn't get out, right? Yeah, for listeners who don't know who Herodotus is, he's the first historian. He's the father mm -hmm. of history. He's also the first travel writer, the first anthropologist. The word history itself comes from the Greek historia, which means something like investigations. You know, it's he, he goes around asking questions of how things became the way they are. Yeah, and he gets everybody's stories. Yeah, and it's a fun read. You know, you mentioned that there are other accounts of this in, in the Quran, in uh, Surah Shu'ara, the poets, uh, Surah 26, verse 169, we read, and this is in Abdul Halim's translation published by Oxford, Lord, save me and my family from what they are doing. This is Lot. And then the Lord says, we saved him 
and all his family except for an old woman who stayed behind. Then we destroyed the others, and poured a rain of destruction down upon them. How dreadful that rain was for those who had been forewarned. And so here we have that that there's a, an old woman who's left behind, and the, the exegetes, Ibn Kathir, uh, a well-known exegete, says this is Lot's wife. Mm, so okay. Lot's wife doesn't actually leave with him. It's not that she leaves and looks back. And this is really not that different from the idea that that she leaves, but her heart stays behind, right? And, you know, I won't read it, but I actually want to mention a poem that is written about Lot's wife by Anna Akhmatova, born in 1889, died in 1966, entitled Lot's Wife, where I think we can sympathize with her a little bit. And she actually reminds me of Emma Smith, who also stayed behind, right? Well, it's your home. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's this is Lot, you know, Lot's wife. And that's that's what the poem brings out is that this is the place where her children are born. This is the place where she lived. This is the place where, where all these things happen to her in her life. And so of course she's looking back. Yeah. So we can we can have a, a little bit more sympathetic reading of her too in that way. Yeah. So then comes the actual destruction of the city. We get the going to get to verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. So again, you know, this is attributed to God, but really this could just as easily be a perfect description of what an invading, conquering, scorched earth army would do to a rival city state in ancient times. And so again, if we want to say there's some historical event that is inspiring this story, then it it makes a whole lot more sense for it to have been a destruction by way of a, a conquering army than something else. So they get out Lot and his two daughters and what follows is this really bizarre echo of what happens with Noah, right? Where Noah's drunk and naked and that whole thing. So daughters of Lot, they get him drunk. They in turn lie with him and they both conceive. And the idea is that they think that that's necessary so that they can pass on the family name, so to speak, right? You know, keep the family alive. Well, depending on which version of the story you read, I mean, they think that there's no one left on earth. This is like Noah's sure. flood for them. Sure. There's, you know, according to where they're living, at least in one version, they don't have any reason to think that. Mm-hmm. So depending on the version, they either have or don't have reason to think that. But the story here is that they do think that. They do think that there's no other way that not only their family, but that humankind can remain after this, right? Yeah. Other than for them to procreate with their father. And so another interesting thing about this is that just as, you know, when, when Lot is offering his daughters, it's not moral what he's doing. It just seems to him better than to offer up his guests, right? And it's interesting because now he gets his, his comeuppance, right? Now they're going to rape him yeah, as he had offered them to be raped. You know, this is another echo here of, of what's going on with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is of previous chapters where you had neighboring city-states come and invade, attack, and capture Lot and his family. And Abraham goes out with his house, 318 or so, something like that, and goes back and captures Lot. So again, we already know that there are bad relations between the peoples here 
the people surrounding and then Sodom and Gomorrah, right? There's there's already some issues going on. And so then when we get this destruction of the whole city, yeah, I think from a certain perspective, you could say that the Dars of Lot think the world has ended, right? You know, everybody's dead. We're the only ones left. Everybody else has been burned. But I think looking at this, the author kind of tips his hand, in my opinion, here as to why this story comes about. Because after they conceive and they have children, it says the firstborn bore a son and named him Moab. He is the ancestor of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son named Ben-Ami. He is the ancestor of the Ammonites to this day. So it, it seems to me, like I said, that the author kind of tips his hand in throwing this etiological description at the end. And that's trying to give an explanation of where the Moabites come from and where the Ammonites come from. And drawing them back to this, yeah, you know, like, if you go back far enough, we are kind of related through Lot, but they aren't really of the chosen line, right? They aren't really of the, the covenant line. And they those people even came about by incest. And so there's a lot of ways in which this story sort of is a, a slight at these other peoples. And so it would make sense to me in these etiological traditions that we're developing in the in Genesis where all of these other peoples are are sort of say, well, where that that's where those people came from and that's where those people came from. Like it does back with with Shem and Ham and Japheth. There's lots of description of where all these different peoples came from because they descended from certain ancestors. Again, it seems to be this this assertion that all these other peoples they they came from these, but if you follow our line, we are the true blood, the true believers that go back to Abraham. Yeah, and this is par for the course for the Bible, right? It's mm -hmm. Again, we can compare the story with the story of Noah, right? The nakedness of Noah that we covered last time. Although, I'll just mention that one interpretation of what happened is that there was an instance of incest, right? Mm -hmm. That there was incest. Not that there was a, a homosexual incest between the sons of Noah and Noah, but perhaps uh, the son and the mother, something like that. Mm. And so that's that's an interpretation that that it is valid from the text, right? It's not the only possible interpretation, but it is one possible interpretation. And so if we bring that forward, then we have here something that looks a lot like that again. And the names themselves of of the sons that result from from this incest are what is it again? Maab. Uh, from my father, right? Mm -hmm. And Ben-Ami, mm -hmm. which is saying son of my kin, right? So the, the names themselves are part of the tipping of the hand. And a lot of these names, sometimes I wonder, are we giving an explanation for what's going on by giving a name that gives an explanation, that the name actually tells us what's going on? Or is it that these names are there and they're coming up with dubious etymologies for the names, or at least if not dubious, at least potentially dubious etymologies for these names, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we talked about this before. In our modern cultural context, names don't typically mean more than the person that they are indicating. Whereas in the ancient cultures, names first meant what they meant and you gave them to the person because of what they meant, right? Right. And so you know, Abraham has a specific meaning. And again, remember names of the covenant people are given by God. Abraham, you know, it's Abram first, but then God gives him Abraham. 
and it's Sarai first, but God gives her Sarah. And Ishmael, his name is given by God. Isaac, his name is given by God. So all of these names are given to them and have a specific meaning, and the meaning is spelled out in the text. You know, we didn't talk about this specifically, but the name Isaac comes from that verb of laughing that both Abraham and and Sarah do, that they would laugh at at the fact that this would be uh, their child. And Ishmael from God God hearing his cry. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, their, their names are given by God. And we, this is important because it was pointed out last time, especially thinking about the Tower of Babel story. There's a tendency that we have to want to make a name for ourselves. And then there's God giving us a name. Yeah. And there's that contrast. Yeah. Yeah. We even see that to a certain extent in our tradition with how we do temple ordinances. Yeah. And there's also in the Christian tradition, with baptism came taking on a, a uh-huh. Christian name, the Christian, and you see, yeah. and you see converts to Islam who take on Muslim names in yep. the same way when they convert. You know, so there's there's a sense in which the Tower of Babel story and and other stories, because that's what we're seeing here is a pattern developing. They're showing us how our purposes can be at cross purposes with God's, or in the case of someone like Abraham and Lot and uh, Noah. That if if we align ourselves, if we walk with God, as the Bible puts it, then He gives us a name rather yeah. than us trying trying to make a name for ourselves, and and He protects us in some sense, in a very real sense. From whereas those uh, around us may not be protected, and the Bible makes it a point to point back to Noah and Lot in this way, and the Quran does the same thing with Abraham. It actually mentions all three of them in the same way, and as I mentioned last time, I think it's difficult to see why. Abraham, because we don't see something like what happens to the people around Lot and the people around Noah happening to people around Abraham, unless we read from the Apocalypse of Abraham, which is an extra canonical text. Yeah. Um, This next chapter tells us the story of Abimelech. And, you know, we have another iteration here. This is kind of in the almost to meet the demands of the chiasmic structure, if you ask me, (laughs) because it's echoing what happens with Pharaoh and Sarah. Abraham comes and he says that Sarah is his sister, doesn't talk about her being his wife. Here in the text, we actually get the pronouncement that she is his actual half-sister, although earlier in the text, it's never explained that she really is Terah's daughter, but Abraham says she is. Again, it's not clear whether she literally is or whether Abraham is just saying the fact It's also not clear to me, maybe you have a better explanation for this, Christopher, why Abraham does this at all. I I mean, he does say that he's afraid of being killed, but it just seems like kind of an an odd thing to do, an odd way to treat your wife, right? Right. So we have a parallel here with the story. He did this before, right? He did this with Pharaoh. He's afraid because his wife is so beautiful that someone will want his wife and kill him to have her. So he says, oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Well, he doesn't say she's not his wife. He just says she's my sister, which again, he's going to, how should I say, disingenuously say, well, she really is my sister. And and she really is. But yeah. he's giving the impression that he is only her sister, not his wife, to protect himself. Yeah, his intention is to deceive. Right, it really is. And so, and he gives her as wife, first to Pharaoh, and then, as, uh, then to Abimelech. And again, there are two different versions of this story. Here, Abimelech 
takes her to wife, but he actually doesn't touch her. And he says so. So when God accuses him in both cases, the Pharaoh and Abimelech are told, not by Abraham who lied to them, but by God, this is someone else's wife. You've done wrong. And they, in both cases, they say, take your wife back and take all these gifts too. I mean, they really give Mm -hmm. him riches. I mean, significant riches, right? I don't know where else he gets them. As far as we know, this is where he gets all of his riches. (laughs) There's a pattern here, By pawning off his wife. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's an odd thing. Yeah, dare I say prostituting his wife. I don't know, you know. But in the case of Abimelech, he says, oh, I didn't touch her. And he lied to me. It's not my fault. And God says... Yeah, you know, that's true, right? And again, there are different there are two different versions of the story from going back to the documentary hypothesis, probably different authors, right? And it's like on the one hand, God has kept him from touching her. It's implied that he's impotent, right? Mm. And in another sense, you know, he just he doesn't touch her and so God says, "Okay, by the way, he's a prophet. He can pray for you." And we don't know why he's saying this. And you read on and you find out that he's not able to have children. I mean, why? What's going on? Is Again, is he impotent? So when Abraham prays for him, now he's able to have children. But wait a minute. The reason that this was happening was because Abraham lied to him. And so now Abraham's going to pray to him and solve the problem. It's sort of circular, you know? It it's is. really, yeah. these stories are strange, Ben. They are strange. Really strange. They are strange. And when strange. I say strange, you know, strange means... I mean, we can, we can, t- you can take that as odd, but I mean, and I don't not mean odd. I do mean odd. They're odd stories, but they're strange because we don't have the context for them. Yeah, strange is in foreign. Like the context for understanding and and being able to analyze these is exactly they're so foreign to us. Very out of our our normal way of of reading literature. So we we really have to grasp at certain things and and try to pull in context. But at the end of the day, you know, even the scholars say we don't really know everything that's going on here. Right. And so sometimes I wonder, you know, in our tradition, in the Latter-day Saint tradition, we're pretty big on having all the answers, (laughs) right? Meaning we are accustomed to thinking that we have all the answers and we have been given a lot of answers. So it's just, you read these stories and you think, well, I know exactly what's going on here. It's right there in black and white. And if you don't really think about what's going on and you don't really ask yourself questions to try to understand the stories, you may not come to the realization that you really can't. And, and again, if you go into and study it, you find out that you're not alone, yeah. right? Maybe even the scholars don't know what's going on. It reminded me of studying Dante, where, where there are all kinds of interpretations of Dante. And, and sometimes the scholars agree, and sometimes they disagree. And sometimes your guess at what Dante is saying is as good as the greatest Dante scholars, <laughs> because nobody really has any idea what's going on. Right. So, um, yeah, did, was there anything else you wanted to say about the Abimelech story? I can't think of anything else. Okay. So we'll move on to chapter 21. And here we go. Isaac is born. Here we have the fulfillment of this promise that has been given to Abraham for all these chapters, all these years in their old age. They have Isaac, which means something like uh, he laughed, implying God laughing as sort of a homage to Abraham and Sarah laughing at what God was going to do. A response, maybe. Yeah, a response echo to that. He, he who laughs last laughs best. <laughs> yeah. As Isaac is growing up, you know, I guess if he's weaned, then he's at least uh, a few years old, at least, right? I don't know how Usually long Usually three at the time. Yeah, I would say at least a few years old. 
which means that Ishmael, his half-brother, right, is several years even older than that. I don't even know how much he's, older. He's probably a teen yeah. at this point, which is interesting because in one of the versions of the story, and when I say one of the versions, this is something I, I, I could have said about Abimelech, and I could have said it earlier too about uh, Sarah and Hagar and the, and who laughed, you know, the two the two different stories. You know, these stories are actually, they're woven together, right? As you were saying earlier, they're woven together and it's the, it's the scholars who have been able to disentangle them. And I, I'm even reading from one translation. It's from Stephen Mitchell that actually gives me the two separately. And you and I were saying, we don't know if there is such a thing, but we would like to see and we would like to buy it if it's out there. And if not, we ought to publish it would be a version of the Bible that actually shows us these, not separates them like Stephen Mitchell, but actually gives us the the stories as they're woven together, but color codes them so we can see what's going on. Yeah. Right? So in one version of the story, you know, Ishmael is a teen. In another version, Hajar is pregnant with Ishmael. Yeah. Am I getting this wrong, Ben? Well, no. So a few chapters ago, when she gets pregnant and and Sarah uh, doesn't like how things are going with Hagar, she treats her harshly and Hagar runs away into the wilderness, into the desert, right? And in the story, in that narration of the story, she's pregnant and God appears to her. Right. And now we get a different version. In this version, you know, she's cast out and she already has the child. But the thing is like- But the the, child's an infant. Yeah. The way the story's told- implies that the child is little, is an infant, because, you know, it's not able to take care of itself. Uh, she she yeah. lays it under a, a bush. Um, and so it, it, it's kind of odd. The timeline doesn't fit here. So it does lend itself to saying, hey, we've got multiple versions of the story of Hagar going on here. And when they compiled Genesis, whoever they is, they didn't want to lose any of those stories, right? They didn't want to say, well, right. we like this one better. They wanted to keep all of them. And so in order to do that, you know, you compile them into a narrative like this. And the person that did it was master level compiler of the story, because not only did they manage to fit these things all together in a, you know, plausible narrative, although you know, when we really look at it, we see all these <laughs> these inconsistencies. There are contradictions. Yeah. yeah. Not only is it a plausible narrative, but yeah. they, they even make it poetic with like the chiasmic structure and everything. So, I mean, it's masterfully done and, and very beautiful, but we get to these types of contradictions, things that, that don't make sense, that we've got two somewhat competing versions of the story of Hagar. And, and it's not impossible that the same sort of thing happens to her twice. It's just not clear what exactly is going on. Yeah, and in, th- in this version of the story, the the laughing thing comes into play again because I can't remember if it's King James or what King James says, but in the earlier story, we said that just Hajar being pregnant, she was laughing at Sarah. And this is how Sarah felt, at least, is mm. how we interpret it, right? Uh, and then in this version, when Isaac is born, his older brother, Ishmael, is playing or... It could also be translated laughing. Okay. And so this is when now uh, she's sent away. Okay. Yeah. And we talked about last time how the story of Hagar was that climax, the crux of the cosmic structure. And we have this echo. Yeah. In the whole narrative of Abraham. Right. In the whole Abrahamic narrative, which means last week's reading and this week's reading. Correct. Yeah. 
yeah. combined. And um, you can, you know, if somebody's interested in exactly how that maps out, I'm sure if you Googled it, you'd find a map to it. Uh, I see it in my NRSV notes here as well. But, uh, you know, a return to that concept here of, of Hagar and, and what it shows about, you know, who God is and how that's being revealed, that he is is mindful of the oppressed, of the cast out, of those who are, are seen as less, of the slave, of the foreigner, because Hagar is an Egyptian. She's a woman. She's a slave. Um, all of these, you know, things that that push her to the very bottom of the social ladder, right? Right. And you're reading from the Oxford edition of the NRSV Study Bible, right? Correct. This is the New Oxford Annotated Bible, New Revised Standard Version, with the Apocrypha Ecumenical Study Bible. I'll tell you what, I was skeptical getting this thinking, you know, oh, you know, I'm so used to the King James Version. But as I've gotten into it, I've, I've really fallen in love with this translation and, and everything. So I've, I really... I've started uh, looking at it uh, closer than I do the King James. <laughs> I've got a couple of comments about that. You know, so one is back to the contradictions that are found in the Bible. Some translations actually change; they alter the text mm. to get rid of the of the contradiction. Mm. The NIV does that. The mm. NIV actually alters the text so that there is no contradiction when there is in the original. Uh. That's to me. That's dece downright deceptive, right? Yeah. And then on the other hand, even I found something. I was curious because to me, it's been. It's always seems strange that I, I think we're ready to move into the story that we call the Binding of Isaac, right? Yes. Yes. It's always seems strange to me that the text calls Isaac Abraham's only son, right? Because he's not his only son, right? He's he has Ishmael. Ishmael's born first, right? He's actually the firstborn. So Isaac having the birthright is one more instance that we'll see. This is a pattern we'll see of the second son actually getting the birthright when it's normally the first son, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so even the NRSV in this case I found translated and it's a valid translation. Uh the Hebrew that's given, Yachid, is is actually can be translated as only, but it also can be translated beloved. Mm. Or as Stephen Mitchell translated it, darling. Mm. So, and Mitchell points out in his uh, footnote to this verse, and I don't remember the verse number, but this is, you know, where he's called the only son in the, in the story of the, uh, the binding of Isaac. What chapter has that been? 22. 22. Mm -hmm. So the Septuagint actually gets it right, as Mitchell puts it, as uh, agapeton, which is, if you can hear the agape there, this is one of the, the words I think most people know. This is one of the words for love in Greek. So the Septuagint being the Greek Old Testament has it as beloved, not only. So is this a, not that this is referencing, but when we get to the New Testament and we have Jesus being called my beloved son, is that the same kind of thing that this is referencing? Is it used the same word? That's exactly that's exactly okay. where where I went. I didn't. I had the same question. I didn't look at the answer, but we get that Jesus is my only begotten, right? My only yeah. Yeah. son, in some sense, and also that he's the beloved. Yeah. And so that's a really good question. And we'll when we get to the New Testament, 
if not sooner, we'll cover that. Yeah, yeah. Next year's the New Testament. Well, so we we did touch on this a little bit when we did Moses chapter one. Remember, because it talks about only begotten, and and this concept is like, wait, but he is he really the only begotten? You know, and and right. it it does it, you know brings it up here if for no other reason in a symbolic sense. You can't think well. There is a sense in which. Isaac is his only son because Hagar isn't his legal wife. She's a slave, right? Well, but that makes her his property and her children his property. Sure. Yeah, still his son. But like I said, you know, there's the ways that you can twist this, right? To say only she's also been cast out, like she's not among the people anymore. So right. maybe in one sense, he's his only son that's with him, right? His only son that's there, his only son that's left. Right. There's ways that you can twist it and try to, you know, talk about what only means. But definitely, sure. you know, that that Greek word definitely seems better to me in this case. Yeah. And in the end, the word translates either way, right? It translates yeah. as only and as beloved. So um, I want to talk about a general attitude that we might have as we approach this story of, of Abraham and Isaac going up on the mount to worship the idea being that Abraham is going to sacrifice his son Isaac or that God commands him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And I think uh, one of the general attitudes we have approaching this is that I've seen this portrayed in retellings of this story in certain Old Testament storybooks for kids maybe. And they kind of portray Abraham as, as very somber, melancholy, grieving as he's walking up this mountain with Isaac because he has to kill his only son, you know, like he is, is just in anguish of this happening. I'm not saying that's not necessarily what happened, but it's not in the text. It doesn't say anything about Abraham feeling or acting that way. No. And as a matter of fact, he may not be at all because he may know exactly that that's not actually where this is going all along. What is in the text is that he knows. <laughs> right. And that's what's so interesting about it because, you know, they're going to do it. And Isaac asks his father, Abraham, Hey, we don't have a lamb to offer. And Abraham says, God's going to provide the lamb, right? Like Abraham already knows what's going to happen here. So there's many different levels that we can look at this story at, and and we'll try to get to uh, as many as we can here. But one thing I, I want to touch on from the start out is that one possible thing that's going on here, if we want to approach this from like a holistic Latter-day Saint perspective is that remember Abraham in the Pearl of Great Price, Abraham chapter one has Abraham being offered up on an altar and the priest comes with the knife and the angel of the Lord, where it says Jehovah, comes and stops and rescues him. That's right. This is Abraham's deepest, darkest moment when he is delivered by God and he believes in God, but this is the moment when he gets his testimony, right? Like this is his moment of conversion, so to speak. This is his Alma 36. He's in the gall of bitterness and he is in danger and he cries out to the Lord and the Lord comes and saves him, right? The Lord always hears the call. Always hears the call. That's the message of the Old Testament. He hears the call of the oppressed. Exactly. And and in the case of the story of Abraham, it's actually... Hajar, who's in the spotlight of this yes. chiasmus, right? Yes. But also here, Abraham. Yeah. So what I see very possibly going on here is that Abraham is reenacting 
this because this is his foundational, like defining story of his relationship with God. Like this is what puts him on that path, so to speak. And he wants his son to have either the same experience or at least understand what it means to him. And so I almost see this as simply a ritualistic reenactment of that foundational defining moment for Abraham. So he takes his son and he reenacts this. I don't see necessarily a reason to posit that Isaac doesn't know what's going on either. Yeah. You know, then there's many reasons to think this as well, but you know, in the text we have him binding Isaac, but there are other, you know, you're going to talk about these, there are other sources that say he's not bound. But Isaac is doing this willingly. Like he seems to be in on the secret, so to speak, right? You don't you don't bind your child without a struggle <laughs> and take a knife, right? And and so this seems to be a reenactment to me, a ritualistic reenactment so that there's an experience between father and son of the deliverance of the Lord. I don't believe personally that Abraham had the intention of killing his son. I'm with you, Ben. You know, so it's interesting because when it comes to these Bible stories, you know, they're oftentimes very prolix. They tell as much by what they don't say as what they do say. Mm. And so we have to pay attention to what they don't say. And we have to pay attention that we don't fill in the blanks with our, what, what was it you mentioned earlier, the, the uh, some children's book or something, right? Mm, yeah. Or, or some children's video or some other text, even the exegetes. So I'll give you an example. So a couple of things. The first thing that stood out for me, if I compare the biblical narrative of this story that we call the Binding of Isaac to the, the Quranic one, and that's found in uh, Surah Tasafat, which is Surah 37, verses, I want to start at verse 97, because what the Quran does is it actually tells the story that you just covered from Abraham 1, where it says here in verse 97, they said, and these are the people that he's preaching monotheism to, who are the, who are the idolaters, they said, build a pyre and throw him into the blazing fire. They wanted to harm him, but we... And this is God saying, we humiliated them. Hmm. So you talked about them putting him in an altar and, and they raised a knife. What happens next is they burn him, right? That's yes, the sacrifice. That's first the sacrifice, first right. comes the knife, then comes the... And this is why Abraham in the biblical narrative is carrying the firewood, right? Yes. So, that, so he was going to burn him also is the idea. And so right after telling us that he's preaching monotheism and they want to burn him on an altar, pyre, it says... In this translation, this is Abdul Halim's translation again, published by Oxford. And then we get right after that, we get the story of the sacrifice of his son, who's not bound, by the way. And it's interesting because even though that's not in the text that he's bound, it's not in the text, the exegetes say that he was. And they also say that his face is turned so that his father can't look him in the eye, which is which is what we see in the famous painting. I don't remember the the painter, but there's a famous painting that shows us this. And it's on the cover of my copy of Fear and Trembling by Kierkegaard. They say that that he does that so that his father can't look him in the eye and back out. But none of that's in the text. Here's what the text says. And I'm reading from beginning at verse 99. He said, I will go to my Lord. This is Abraham. He is sure to guide me. Lord, grant me a righteous son. So we gave him the good news that he would have a patient son. When the boy was old enough to work with his father, Abraham said, My son, 
I have seen myself sacrificing you in a dream. What do you think? Mm. I'm going to pause there. So we say that God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, and that's the biblical narrative. Here we have that he sees himself doing this in a dream, and he goes to his son and he says, what mm. do you think? By the way, the son isn't named in the Quran, and for most Muslims today, the interpretation is it's Ishmael, not Isaac. But that hasn't always been the case. There are Muslim exegetes that have said Isaac. There are Muslim exegetes that have said Ishmael. But at any rate, the son is not named, but he has this dream. So what do we mean when you say God told him to do it? Isn't it through visions and dreams that God speaks to, to prophets hmm. sometimes? I don't know that he heard a voice that said, sacrifice your son. So it could be, as the Quran has it, a dream, right? So I, I'll continue reading. He said, this is now his son, Father, do as you're commanded, and God willing, you will find me steadfast. And this is where, again, the exegetes will say, he has the idea to to be bound, not, not the father, but the son, so that he will be steadfast, so that he won't change his mind or back out or chicken out or whatever. It was Isaac's idea to be bound. Oh, okay. Right, or, or Ishmael's. When they had both submitted to God, and he had laid his son down on the side of his face, we called out to him. And so, again, here he's laying down on the side of his face, but the reason is not given. The exegetes say that so that he couldn't look his father in the eye. We called out to him, Abraham, you have fulfilled the dream. This is how we reward those who do good. It was a test to prove their true characters. And I think I've read translations that say that it was an obvious test. Again, meaning, implying, Abraham knows it. Yeah. Right? This is an obvious test. And we let him be praised by succeeding generations. Peace be upon Abraham. This is how we reward those who do good. Truly, he was one of our faithful servants. Right. So this is an obvious test as a way to interpret this. Now, it's interesting because one of the Muslim exegetes being one of the mystics, one of the great mystics in Islam, Ibn al-Arabi, who's right up there with Rumi, I think maybe Rumi being the best-selling poet in America today is probably better known than Ibn Arabi, but I think maybe some listeners have heard of him. He, he points out that what we have here, if there's this dream, then we don't necessarily have a moral dilemma. Because, you know, Kierkegaard, I think, is going to say, and most of us read it that way, that you have thou shalt not kill, and then you have kill your son. And it's right. a double bind, as Alan Watts would call it, a double bind. Just like don't eat from the fruit and be fruitful and multiply, which we see as somehow a double bind too. And double binds, this is what life is all about, right? We tell our kids to be themselves and then to stay in line, right? <laughs> and this is a contradiction. Right? It's a double bind we put our kids in. And, and, and it was done to us first, right? So if we don't have a moral dilemma, what have we? And the answer Ibn Arabi gives is it's not a moral dilemma, but an epistemological dilemma. Abraham has this dream. Now, what's he supposed to do with it? Is he supposed to interpret it literally? Take it literally and act it out? Or something else? And so when he stopped, if it is this question, right, of this epistemological question of what to do with this dream, how to interpret it, and he takes it literally and acts it out and he stopped, then that was the wrong answer, right? That's one way to look at it. You know, I really like what you talked about there with the idea that he has to act out this dream that he has. I see it, again, going back to the idea that this is a, a reenactment. I see that as, as resolving a lot of these things because, you know, he has this dream and the Lord tells him to to act this out, right? This goes along with the concept we've developed a little bit of a mode, 
the Lord giving us a mode by revelation whereby we, we come close to him. And and this is the way in which Abraham experienced God at a very crucial moment of his life. Again, he's he's going to pass that on. And so the idea wouldn't have ever been that he's actually going to kill Isaac. What they're doing is they're acting out the ritual and it's all understood, right? It's this obvious test. Well, why is it obvious? Because it's a reenactment. He's not going to actually kill him, right? And at the crucial moment of this ordinance, what do you have? God coming or an angel coming to manifest himself, which is the whole point of the mode is that we connect with God. We receive a revelation from God. God delivers us in that moment. You go down into the waters of baptism as a manifestation of your humility, and you come out, and then you're filled with the Holy Ghost. And so you go down and lay on the altar as an act of humility, and then the angel comes and stops you as a deliverance from God. Not that you were worried that when you get baptized, you're going to go under the water and drown, right? Right. That's not the point. You're not going to actually die under the water. You're symbolically dying and coming forth. You're not going to actually get stabbed with a knife, right, Isaac? And burned. This is your re, yeah, we're reenacting this. And, you know, burn, that's an interesting analog to Holy Ghost, right? I didn't think about that concept. Right. It's but exactly the baptism of the Holy Ghost, yeah. This is this ritualistic reenactment, an ordinance, if you will, that, that Abraham's passing on to his son, you know, hoping that he will understand his relationship with God. And so I, I actually see real power in that. It fits really well with God telling him to do it. It fits really well with Abraham knowing exactly what's going on, Isaac not objecting, just asking questions. How is this going to work? You know, how do we go about this? Abraham knowing exactly how everything's going to go. And then God revealing himself in the ordinance, right? In that moment. That's good, Midrash Ben. <laughs> I had thought about this story a lot. I think there's there's several more ways to to analyze it, but I'll just say in my my reading through this time and remembering Abraham chapter one, it really fit together with not only the character of Abraham, but really fit better with the text than than other explanations that I had heard before. And the character of God. Yes, especially. And I, ha- I have to say that the Quran really opened this up a lot for me in this, yeah. in this story. Yeah, It's a very good enrichment of, of that concept there. So yeah, the, the principal thing that Abraham brings from this, right, is the Lord will provide. So he calls that place by that name. And then by extension, this becomes associated with the name of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, we, you know, we didn't even talk about them going up on a mountain, did we? You know, not necessarily That's like, right. right? This is a, a, a temple ritual, right? This is a performance of a temple ritual. Yeah, the, the biblical text goes into that, into that level of detail. Mm-hmm. So after this, we get to the point of, of Sarah's death and what goes into her being buried and everything. And as we started talking about this, I was, I was realizing we were chatting a little bit, Christopher, that, you know, overall, Sarah just isn't portrayed very well in the text. I'll bet she was a better person than it. the Bible seems to portray her as. You know, I didn't notice that, Ben, really. You know, when you pointed that out, it was so obvious, and, and I hadn't noticed it. Go, go through the list. You gave me a list of all the things. Well, I mean, from the start, Sarah is bitter about her condition, which, I mean, 
you know, all of these things people can uh, empathize or at least sympathize with, you know, sure. Sarah's condition, right? But but it, it still doesn't paint her as, you know, this faithful person in kind of in contrast to how Abraham approaches a lot of things. And so in, in the first place, she's bitter about her condition. She sets up the whole relationship with Hagar and Abraham but then she's upset about it. And first she goes after Abraham and gives him, you know, a tongue lashing. And then she treats Hagar bad. So she has to leave and she's a pregnant woman, right? And she essentially makes her leave. And Abraham doesn't have any say, Ben. Yeah. It's, this is this is her servant. Right. She says, send send her away. And he gives her some water and food and sends her away. And the, and the water's not enough. And we've already covered that story. Yeah. And then in the text, it kind of has her laughing at God, right? I mean, that's not a good picture, right? Although Abraham does too in one of the, in the other version, sure, right? That's true. That's true. And then, you know, even though Hagar comes back, Sarah, oh, oh and Sarah's agreeing to uh, being called his sister and going and, and becoming the wife of Pharaoh and Abimelech, right? So Hagar comes back and she's with him for the time. She bears Ishmael, apparently lives there for a while. But then once Sarah actually gives birth to Isaac, she then decides she doesn't really want Hagar around anymore. So she casts her out again, right? And so Hagar has to go out with her son into the wilderness. And so that that's the way that the narrative in the text reads is this, she ends up casting Hagar out twice. So besides basically the statement of how beautiful Sarah is, she doesn't get a whole lot of good treatment here in the text. And I don't know what else to say, just in the fact that, you know, that's the way that the text treats Sarah. I could take a stab at why. If the central point of this narrative is that God hears the cry of the oppressed and the oppressed is Hagar, then the story is not about Sarah, it's about Hajar, right? Sure, sure. And so God hearing Hajar is going to be... It's not necessary, right? But but it does help the story if Sarah doesn't look good, right? Yeah, that's true. Kind of drives it forward as she really, you know, Hagar really wasn't in a good situation. She wasn't being treated well. Right. We're supposed to identify in a story like this with the underdog. Yes. And that's yeah. Hajar. Yeah. 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 All that to say, I don't know Sarah, so I don't have anything personally bad to say about her. <laughs> Right. Uh, I just wanted to bring out or Lot's that, wife it, for that matter, yeah, if, or Lot's wife for that matter, exactly, or, or Emma Smith, yeah, right. The text doesn't doesn't treat her well, and we do have to remember a lot of times that we're getting passed down these stories. We're only getting little tidbits, and who Sarah was actually as a person, we unfortunately don't get from the text. There's a sense in which we don't know who Abraham is either, though, right? Sure. And so what we can do with that to turn that around is to realize that as the interpretation we gave, the the psychological, the Jungian, in fact, interpretation is that all of us have a higher call to answer. And so we're, in a sense, we're given archetypes here. Mm. Now, I don't, again, I don't know what Sarah may be a shadow archetype in the story, (laughs) but yeah, yeah, but the, but I think again, the, the central point of the story is Hajar, uh, the, the oppressed. Yeah. Agreed. So what about the burial of Sarah? You know, Abraham pays a lot of money for this burial (laughs) site. You know, he's, he's offering to pay whatever the going rate is. 
And then he's offered the land for free, which is only rhetorical. He knows that. He doesn't accept it. And he pays uh, this exorbitant amount. And it's going to be hers and his burial place. And that's about all I can say about that. Do you have anything to add to that? Well, it's interesting the comment you made that that it's offered to him for free and it's rhetorical. He knows that that's not he has to pay for it. It reminded me of many times when I was in the Middle East and somebody would get something for me or do something something for me and it was obvious that I owed them money, but the cultural tradition was first to refuse payment and you had to insist in in certain contexts if you're in somebody's home, it's different. But one of the ones that comes to mind is I got a cab once and guy took me to the grocery store. This was actually at Petra. We went to Petra and uh, guy took me to the grocery store in the town and then brought me back to the hotel. And, you know, he was just so surprised that there's this American kid speaking Arabic. He, he, didn't, he didn't know what to do with it. And we had a great conversation. At the end, you know, I went to pay him. He's like, oh, no, 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 you don't owe me anything. And I was like, yes, I... I definitely owe you something. And I had to insist, you know, to pay him. But there were several times in that case where I could tell that there was this common cultural tradition say, oh, no, you don't owe me anything. We kind of do still have that, I guess, in American culture, but it it seemed much more pronounced there that it, there was this rhetorical refusal and then you have to insist. So we are drawing to the close of the story of Abraham here. You know, Abraham is is still alive at the beginning of the next chapter, but really we start moving into the story of Isaac and, and Jacob and so forth. So we, we start moving solidly into some Israelite ground right there with, with Jacob Israel. And so that's where we're going to be, be getting to next time. Yeah, Ben, you know, one thing I can say about when, when I said earlier, I, I told what I know about the last chapter in this week's reading, right? And, and I said, and that's all I know. That's all I can say. I really meant that's really all I know and all I can say about it. <laughs> and so I just want to point out that Ben and I are doing our homework. And I, I think I can speak for both of us in saying we have no idea what's going on here right? in this chapter. <laughs> it's another strange story. Yeah, it is. And I don't know what, what's what's in that chapter for me. It's, what's the significance of it? I, I said I said to you earlier today, Ben, let's just leave it out. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much to talk about. I'm glad we mentioned it. And again, if we can just approach these texts from a place of not knowing and be willing and open to learning, then I think we can get more out of it. But that didn't work with this chapter for me. <laughs> Caveat emptor. Doesn't always work. <laughs> That's right. But but it, yeah. but I certainly, I really did get a lot out of the other chapters by being open to different interpretations than the ones I've had to other texts that, you know, the intertextuality uh, between the Bible and the Quran and other sources and from the scholars and from you, Ben, you know, where I asked you when you shared, uh, when you shared with me your interpretation of, of the story of Lot, where are you getting this? I thought it was so strange. And, <laughs> and, and you said it was your own interpretation. I said, whoa, man, I, I, I was really, you know, I wasn't sure about that. And, and the more you, you shared, the more it made sense. And so thanks for that, Ben. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you to our editors. Thank you to you, the listener, for, for being with us. Please leave your comments, whether it be on social media, on YouTube. Leave us a review on, on Apple. What is it called? On iTunes? Yeah, Apple Podcasts. Yeah. And uh, tell your friends. If you have questions, comments reach out to us. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. 
Thank you for listening.